Hello everyone, my name is Mona Siddiqui and I'm a professor at the University of Edinburgh School of Divinity. In this new series of podcasts, I'll be exploring different virtues with academics, writers, thinkers and a range of artists, basically people who've touched my life, my work and my thinking in some way. I wanted to enjoy these conversations as an insight into my guests' personal and professional life as we explore these complex themes. And we begin the series with a topic of gratitude. I'm delighted to introduce my first guest, singer, songwriter, broadcaster and all-round Scottish phenomenon, Ricky Ross, lead singer of the acclaimed band Deacon Blue and also solo artist. Ricky, I have to say, I'm really quite excited at um, welcoming you because when I tell my family, they said, how can you have such a cool guest on? So (laughs) I'm really excited and also pleased that you've agreed to be the first guest in these series of conversations. Welcome. I'm the guinea pig. I'm the guinea pig. You're not the guinea pig. And I thought you might say that, (laughs) but you're really not the guinea pig. You're just somebody I can rely on. That's how I'm saying this. So uh, you have such an extraordinary um, experience with broadcasting, with singing, with all kinds of writing and speaking. So I thought you'd be the perfect guest. So welcome and thank you for agreeing to do this once again. Pleasure, pleasure. Let's start with where most conversations start, Ricky, and a little bit about your formative years and your childhood. Um, Bearing in mind that we're keeping the theme of gratitude running throughout this podcast, what is it that you remember most and what are some of the feelings that you've been left with about your childhood? I think I had a happy childhood. I've reflected on this. Before. I've got one sister. She's she's older than me. Uh, we got on very well. Uh, and we have a, a... Our mother is still alive. Uh, I say that because she's just turned 92 and mm-hmm. she's a good age. Um, and my father died uh, about 25 years ago. So we haven't had him for a long time. But we've reflected... You know, a lot of times about our childhood and <laughs> done the thing where you've gone through different stages of. of I mean, I've done a lot of reflection because I'm a songwriter, so that's what you do. Um, lots of times when you've sort of tried to think, well, was it, you know, as good as we remember it and blah, blah, blah? And was it as good as other people's? What, what were the things that we should have been worried about? And to be honest with you, um, we've both reflected. Um, individually and collectively that we were very happy um, and that we had a very sort of balanced childhood. Now, there's lots of things we probably had and some things we didn't have, but on the whole, it was, I think, uh, very happy. It's, it's interesting you say that because happiness is such a contested concept nowadays. And so when you're reflecting back, how are you measuring the fact that you were happy what is it that you remember that you think made your childhood happy? Well, I think it was. A, I mean, I think it was a lack of trauma. Um, I think there was a lack of, probably a lack of drama. Uh, but my wife, for example, uh, lost her mother uh, through cancer. Didn't really know her mother was dying of cancer because these in these days, this is like mid seventies. I think a lot of details were kept from family and ch- and the children. So she was aged 11 when she lost her mother. Uh, and I think that's left a, a long, cast a long shadow of the rest of her life, to be honest. She would say that. I'm not, I'm not projecting that on her. So we, were, we had an absence of that. We had two grandparents who were very much uh, part of the family on my mother's side. Uh, my father had lost his father quite early on. And I think that was a slight trauma in his early married life. 
but not one that was visited on us. My father had his own business, um, and he was he was a wholesale stationer, and he and he sold toys to uh, to shops. You, know, mm-hmm. you can imagine how how popular I was. It's, you know, <laughs> like your dad has a toy shop. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, my mum uh, taught, she taught at the local primary school where I went to, and she was actually very popular. I remember being, um, I remember getting on the bus at the end of term one time to go to my grandparents' house, and these two girls from, a, 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 I think, maybe a couple of years above me sort of stopping me and saying, your mother's Mrs. Ross. <laughs> thinking, oh, no, what's going to happen now? And they were delighted that they were going to be getting her next, the next session. Oh, that's nice. So, I mean... You know, I didn't have, I can't think of much to complain about, but mm. all of that was framed in a very religious context because mm. we were we were in a, our, our community, our village, if you like, uh, we lived in Dundee and we lived in the Broadway Ferry mainly, uh, but our village in real terms was the, the kind of evangelical community that we belonged to, the gospel, when, when I went to it was called the Gospel Hall. And it really was there that all of my life mean life events happened um and again that's not something that i would it's not a practice of christianity that i would necessarily Mm -hmm. feel at home with now but again i have no ill feelings towards it yeah i mean so much of our perspective on life is framed by where we choose to live and especially if you choose to live in the same city or the same country uh, that you lived in as a child Um, And you've experienced so many, um, as you've lived in Scotland through most of your life, you've experienced the changes, um, both not only politically, but also in terms of your own personal life. As a person of faith, has this concept of both remembering gratefully your childhood, the happiness, has that concept stayed with you in any way? Um, Yes, I think it, I think it does um, in in the same way in inverse proportion to the what I was talking about before, where you know childhood uh, adverse childhood experiences cast a long shadow. I think in the same way happiness, I think, <laughs> and gratitude probably casts a long shadow. Um, I think we grew up in a family which was also very. Um, I suppose you know that I suppose that post-war generation of of my, my parents, uh, and their parents were post First World War generation or, or they'd grown up during the First, uh, First World War, um, were all kind of grateful that they'd come out of these types of uh, awful world wars, which, which you know, in which people were lost and, and times were really hard. And I think there was a sense in which definitely each subsequent generation wanted to do better than the last. And there was an expectation put on so that when it came along to our generation, we went to college, university, or whatever. Uh, my mum had, had done the same thing, but that was, you know, more unusual. Um, and and I think that, you know, you're asking, was I aware of of? Uh, well, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm probably not quite fully answering your question. So maybe you can define it. A bit more. No, I suppose you know we 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 reflect on what we've achieved later on in life. Mm. When we're younger, we're so busy trying to get the achievements. (laughs) And later on in life, we realize, actually, as you said, you know, when you reflect on your childhood, it was a happy childhood, Mm. by and large. And I sometimes think, at least I don't think, that I've reflected enough on what I should and could have been grateful for. Mm. And so now that I look back and, and when I compare sometimes with other people, 
there's still a sense of ambition. There's still a sense of, I want to do more. But mm. at the same time, that's tempered by the, by, the, by the notion of, but I've also got so much to be grateful for. Yeah. And then I start tracking that back. When did I start thinking like this? Mm. So, but I think for me, it's been there for a while, not just because I'm thinking about these concepts more, but just in the sense of realizing as you get older, life is so fragile. Yeah, there's another thing here which is really worth um, putting into the mix, which is that you, you were talking about you know being young, and I think that when I was teenage years, nearly twenties, you all the only thing you were desperate to do was to move away from your home. You know, you, you just <laughs> wanted to cast everything aside, its values, mm -hmm. you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, you know, and it's it's very funny because we our generation. I've got four kids mm -hmm. who ask me my opinion on things like music they ask me do i like this that they're listening to or which way do i vote because i don't know which way to vote i mean we were like of course. these were <laughs> yes in, in our generation these absolutely were like opposite so whatever my dad thought i i thought you know i wanted to be different i didn't you know if, if i like music i'm you know damn sure my dad didn't like it and yes. so on and so forth so that's that's really changed and it took a long time to, I suppose it got to the point where you started to look after, look out for your parents more. And then you suddenly thought, well, wait a minute, you know, they've done a pretty good job here. Absolutely. And it took probably, I think probably the turning point for that is having children yourself. And then you think, gosh, this is quite a difficult job. Yes, yes. Well, obviously the fact that they're still asking your opinion means you're doing something right. Well, well, yes, or, yes. or they're completely lost. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about a little bit about your music. You're obviously uh, the lead singer of Deacon Blue, an acclaimed Scottish band for decades, but you're also a solo artist. When you were a child, were you into music then? Did you see it as a vocation or did this gradually come upon you? Well, I grew up in Dundee and I don't know what it was like where you were, but where Dundee felt at that time like you didn't really hear Dundee voices on the radio or TV. You didn't hear, you didn't think that they could be you know, that was something that wasn't allowed. Mm. Um, so television, radio, entertainment, music were things that happened far away. They happened in America or they happened in London at the, at the close, but they didn't happen to us. And so it wasn't seen as a possibility. There was a time when I thought there was three things that would be really cool to do. I had a, a brief fling with, you know, we were kind of like the 1970 election. I was in primary school. We got, a, we, we, I think our local MP, who ended up being Lord Thompson, who was the chair of Channel 4 eventually, um, I'd written to him for a school project and, and counted him while he was electioneering. And he, I think that and no MP could ever do these days. He offered me a lift home from, we were out playing like near the school when he was campaigning and he offered us a lift, which I didn't take, I had my bike. <laughs> But I think he was trying to press my parents who were probably Tory voters. Uh, anyway, um, and we from, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, there was a brief time I thought, oh, that would be a great thing to be a, you know, to be a politician. It looked quite exciting. And then there was a bit where you always wanted to be a footballer. And then there was another bit where you thought it would be great to be a musician or a song, you know, a singer or something like that, but you had no idea how, you'd really no idea how any of these things happened. Of course. And I think that very quickly the football one ebbed away. <laughs> uh, the political one sort of hung around for a while. I, you know, I, I think even in midlife, I thought, would that be something? And then, you know, anytime I get ever got close to thinking that, I thought, 
are you nuts? <laughs> Just yes. like uh, so. Um, so the musician one was something something that again it didn't really occur to me that I could do it. I just I got I had a bug. I, I played piano and I, I gravitated towards writing songs. I guess is what is is a, is a short long answer. Did you know yourself that you had such a great voice? Did someone tell you you had a voice and that you could? No, sing? I didn't have a voice. I don't. I still don't have a voice. I, and my wife would tell you this, and she's a much better <laughs> singer than I am. I, I still don't think of myself as a singer. I think of myself as someone who, I think of myself probably first and foremost as a songwriter. That's what I really wanted to do. And when I started doing this, I really didn't think I would perform the songs myself. I, I kind of wanted to be just a songwriter. Uh, but, you know, circumstances change. <laughs> so, but presumably you do realise that there is some merit to your voice. You've been going for decades. People want to hear you. People want to buy your records. Well, that's nice, and uh, yeah, I, I recognise now that that's part of what Deacon Blue do and what I do, and um, I kind of have accommodated myself to my own voice. But you know, in the sense that Roy Orbison or uh, Mario Lanza or you know Johnny Mitchell even uh, have voices, I don't have that kind of voice or range. So I, but I, I kind of I know that, and I, the kind of voices I do like, like Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, and uh, you know, I suppose. Uh, People like that have a different sense sensibility towards singing, and 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 they rec and I recognise in their, their voices something which is the truth, you know, mm -hmm. storytelling, and that's kind of what my voice is for, really. Is that how you see your songwriting career as a broad spectrum of storytelling, of reflections on your own life and the city and the places you see? I was yeah well uh, I think so I think the the um, I can't remember where this conversation took place recently because we're all isolated it must have taken place online um, but I think I was having a conversation with someone where I was saying I know who it was with actually it was with an artist that I'm going to be speaking to on my radio program and I think it was about how it's so much easier as a songwriter and I can relate this to other songwriters to reflect on something after a while in a song rather than for me directly reflect about it at the time you know so if someone said to me write a song about what's going on now you know in the world i would be really struggling i would have to get to a point where i would come across a story of the way it affected me or a story about someone else and it would have to become a kind of little human thing you know a little, mm. a little event human event i guess you know for for me to make sense of that so do you i'm just trying to think and trying to compare it with writing sometimes i know what i want to say mm. and then my writing drives me to saying that do you kind of know what you want to say in your song and then the words follow around that <laughs> no i think that's the that's the awkward bit <laughs> <laughs> if I knew what I wanted to say, it would be sometimes easier, I think. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just, well, the thing about songs is, for a start, there's two bits to them. There's the words and the music. I know that's a very obvious thing to say, but the music makes you feel a certain way. So yes. obviously you've got that, you know, you've got that, as it were, that heavy lifting of the emotional stuff. The music's doing some of that for you. Um, and so you've got to kind of reflect on that. And I... I've done a lot of talking to other songwriters and for years I thought I was alone in this, um, that sometimes you start something and very often sit on the piano and you just 
sing the first thing that comes out of your head. And times in, so many times I've gone back to thinking, well, that was a lot of nonsense. What I really wanted to write is this. Um, but then I go back to the original team and went, and go, actually, there was something in that. There was something, I just sang something. What, what, what does that mean? What does that, you know, what is that thing I've just sung? What does that say? And so you start in a kind of backwards formation. And then maybe once the whole thing's finished, you think, oh, right, that's what I was trying to say. Mm. And, and so it's, it's different from writing, I guess, prose or nonfiction or poetry in that sense. It's, 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 you tumble across it, really. And I think maybe it's more akin to painting or something like that, where you're, you know, you're just playing around with it and then eventually it can all make sense, yes. hopefully. So your most recent album, City of Love, mm. um, is a nine studio album by Deacon Blue. Is that right? Yes, I think so. And so when do you know when a song is finished? When do you know when an album is complete? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think that f for a lot of, uh, you know, obviously for classical musicians and, and, and jazz musicians, when, they, when they've got the thing written down, it's done. Uh, you know, it's there, it's, it's in manuscript for people, you know, orchestra can play it or a pianist can play it, and it's written. I think for uh, most pop musicians, rock musicians, folk musicians, it's funny, funny for folk musicians that they will change it, it'll go on for years. Sometimes the song's finished and people will add bits to it, you know, so is it finished? Um, and I think in some ways we're still in that tradition where uh, you could, I think, the, the line between folk music and country music and, you know, all these things is very blurred. But for me, uh, I think it usually is the last, is the vocal take of the of the thing in the studio. And when you've finished that vocal take, you definitely know, because there's sometimes when you've just ad-libbed something and it's changed it, um, that usually defines that it's actually finished. So for us, the recording process can be quite creative. Now, I'm these days more and more sure that I, I do demos at home and I kind of try and nail the thing down. But then we go in the studio and it doesn't work, so you start changing it again. So I think when it's finished, you know, it's mixed, then it's finished. Do you think songwriting is both a gift and a task? It's, it's, not, it's a, you know, sometimes it's, you can see it far enough. <laughs> <laughs> because it bugs you. And I think the thing, the reason that I persevere um, is you, I, maybe, I think maybe you, you are a songwriter or you aren't. And if you are, then you go naturally to it and you can't not do it. Um, and in that sense, it's a bit of a task. It's a gift in the sense that all oh, music, music, um, musical ability is some kind of gift and you've got to have some ability but it's also just a craft that you can definitely get better at and worse at and you can definitely learn you know one, one of the things that i even late in life and i i started about 20 years ago when i when deacon was stopped the first time i did a lot of writing with other people and i thought wow <laughs> she was like well you do that <laughs> and it was kind of good for me i mean it wasn't necessarily always that you just necessarily did what they did, but it was like, oh, is that what they do? And mm. certainly, I think that that can be learned. That stuff can definitely be learned. You have two shows, Ricky, at the moment, both the Radio 2 show um, and also another country, which is yeah. um, country music. How do you define your own music? 
You know, I, I never did really. And uh, it was great because in the early days, when you got into a taxi or something, or someone, you know, someone said, oh, you're in a band, what kind of music do you play? You could, uh, you'd have to could describe it in some way. Uh, whereas now you say, well, look, it's out there. <laughs> you go and listen to it. You can, you know, they'll, they'll know it. If they don't know, you can point them towards, well, these days, Spotify or something. So I don't, I don't really bother. There are two things I've recently read about you, two things that, um, one very poignant and one which you talked about in terms of gratitude in the interview did, you did with The Big Issue. And the first one was the death of Bill Cox, who was obviously somebody who, who you wrote about and said someone who came to all your gigs and he's passing away. And you did a very emotional piano version, um, uh, the classic Dignity song as a tribute mm. to him. Did you do this because you felt compelled to show your gratitude to him, to show recognition of someone who was almost like a friend to you and the band? Yes, I think is a short answer to that. Um, it's funny because Bill is a very particular character. That there's some people who um, you know come to gigs and and they want you to to know that they uh, they'll get seats in the front row and they're very much almost like, you know, they want to become part of the thing. And Bill wasn't one of these guys, but he would come to my solo shows, he would come to Deacon Blue shows it, for, well, it turns out we, we discovered since almost day one, uh, which is over 30 years ago. And he would quietly stand outside, wait for us to come out, to, you know, sometimes we'd be in the dressing room for, I don't know, an hour after the show, sometimes half an hour, but we'd be there for a good while and would come out and Bill would be there at the shows and he would come to a number of shows in the south east of England, then around London, Kent, you know, that kind of way he lived. And so he'd come to bring in Brighton and London and wherever he could manage. And he'd have spent a good amount of money on tickets and he'd be out there and we'd generally uh, tour in, the, in the, the autumn or winter and it'd be cold and it'd be getting on for a midnight. Bill would be there. Can I have a photograph? I brought one for you to sign. Very politely, just gentle spoken man. And when I heard that he was ill, I was I was just really, we were all just really sad. Mm. And we were praying that he'd make it and he didn't make it, of course. And I got the message from his daughter and I wasn't even expecting it. And so I didn't think long about it. <laughs> we are just cleaning up for dinner. I went next door, there was a piano. I put my phone up and I went, I just thought, I'm going to do this right now. And I thought, if it works out, I don't even know how to, I'm not very good at videoing things on my phone. Uh, and I just put it in and I spoke to my, I can't remember how we put it up, I put it up on YouTube or something, so my manager helped me. So I really want to put this up tonight. But it was, it was, it was because, you know, it's the first time that's really happened to us. It was someone that, um, and people often don't realize this, how much an audience means. And there's a beautiful scene in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern when they, when they, they, they Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by Tom Stoppard, where they have that whole discussion about what happens if there's no audience there. Really... You know? And I've, you know, it, it's so true because it, it's not possible to, and people have found this now in this, in this lockdown, what, what we do, that fourth wall is, yes. is what it's all about. Yes. So, yes, it was total gratitude. And gratitude, certainly for Bill, but also to towards everyone who, who comes. And I wanted everyone to, to, you know, to share that, to, to show that, that it, it means so much. That's really moving. And, and, and you did say in the Big Issue interview that I feel a sense of gratitude 
that we still have an audience. Yes, yeah, I do. I mean, and that's nice. I always say that um, when when we started doing gigs, and this is like uh, mid to late eighties, eighty six, eighty seven, um, we would play universities and colleges. In these days, um, they had they seemed to have money to put on you know gigs at the unions and all that kind of thing. But you also felt that the audience could disappear at any point because, you know, if an audience is not paying to come in, they could pass by and check out a couple of songs. But well, actually, there's a good game of snooker going on down, down the hall or there's another gig going on down the road. And I always felt that the difficult thing would be to keep the audience there, you know, to the end of the show. And that was like the, the thing. And I think I've sort of, we've extended that kind of idea to, to, to a career that you know you think they could audience yeah there's, there's so many other things to distract an audience other things to move on to newer younger better looking better sound, you know whatever they are surely not surely not. <laughs> but you know what I mean yes um you know all that kind of stuff so I think that yeah hugely grateful that people are, are still here so we're entering into the final bit of this podcast, Ricky, and I'm going to ask you some questions of a more personal nature. Uh, feel free to answer or decline. The choice is yours. Um, but you and I have met several times. I, mm. I know your work. Um, you've been um, a presenter on BBC Scotland for years. You've interviewed me. But let me just say this. There are people you meet, and when you're talking to, to them, you think they're holding something back. And every time I've met you, I feel that you're holding something back, something quite fundamental about your life. Have I got you completely wrong? Or is this, <laughs> is this, is this normal, really, and that we just don't notice it, that all of us hold something back and we don't realise we're doing it? It's, it's perfectly possible. Uh, I'm not sure what that thing is. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure uh, if, if, that's, if that's true. But I think there are. I think that we... You know, we we have a kind of waiting room and a public thing. We get used to that idea that we have a public persona, I think. I certainly, I've got used to that idea um, that we don't live all of our life in public. And, and I always feel that, uh, certainly because of having having kids as well, who have their own lives, I don't want to, you know, you don't want to live out your life uh, in a sort of goldfish bowl in that sense. And no one... I, I, I can't imagine anyone wanting fame for its own sake because I, I don't mm. understand what it brings. It doesn't, mm. there's nothing really great about it. Um, but in private conversation, that's interesting. I, yeah. Does that mean that I'm, does that mean I, I come over as shy or does it mean that I'm, I'm not engaging or what does that mean? No, you're definitely engaging, but maybe there's a kind of reticence. Maybe there's a, Maybe there's a secrecy. I mean, we all have secrets, mm. but some people are good at hiding the level of secrecy that surrounds their life. Um, and maybe I've got this completely wrong, and maybe none of this is true. <laughs> but I, I, I had to ask you that because it's something that I've thought about every time I've met you. Um, moving on to my second very personal question. Anything that you've regretted, either in your personal or professional life, which you're willing to share or something that you haven't shared before that you're willing to do on this podcast? Well, I suppose the, you know, I suppose I was in a marriage that didn't work. Um, and I was, I think, largely to blame for that. Um, last year was a really interestingly healing year. 
because the daughter that I had through that marriage is still very close, was very close, was married. And we had a beautiful wedding where she was married and her mum was there. And I think that we all felt, her mum felt, and I know my daughter felt, and people that were there felt that it kind of um, brought some sort of, it's a horrible word, but people use this word, closure to something, you know, where mm. where they've been hurt. And, and I think, you know, I, I've been quite open about this before. Um, it, it was definitely me, you know, for lots of different reasons. Um, um, and uh, I felt that that was something, you know, you, you, hurting people is a horrible thing because you... Of course, you regret it, and you and you try and, and try and try and live with that. So I think that that's something that's that's been there um, for me. That's it's probably a, a big big thing, and um, you hopefully learn from these things. But also, I kind of think that I know that that's life. You know that you make. I think one of the things about growing up is you hopefully know that you're going to make huge mistakes. Um, I, I've got other, I mean, everyone's got other regrets. There's things that I think that uh, I sometimes wish, you know, small things about career that I think, oh, I should have done that, or maybe I should have followed that one up, or maybe I should have um, paid more attention to this. But we're talking gratitude. And overall, you know, I'm 62 years old. I've, I'm still doing essentially things that my parents didn't think were were, were real jobs sure. you know? uh, presenting on the radio writing songs performing songs you know but you think but sure you think it's a real job now do you yeah of course <laughs> I do I do but you know what I mean but most people think it's just yeah. like a you know it's yes. like a carnival right really so and, and and that's you know that's fair enough because compared to doing lots of things out in the open air or out in a fishing boat or something like that they, it is so you know it would be kind of churlish to try and say well you know I've got I wish this had happened, that had happened. Um, it would be fantastic to have, you know, other people's, certain other people's careers, I'm sure. But I'm I'm on the whole pretty, you know, happy about that. And I'm also really happy about uh, the relationship I have with my with my children, funnily enough, as well. But I think that you would be less than honest, I would be less than honest if I didn't say that that was a time of life that I wished had gone better. Where did you learn your own concept of gratitude from how did you learn to be grateful did anyone teach you did you just learn it i think that uh almost all the learning about gratitude has come from my mother mainly and also her parents uh, they were not well off at all incredibly grateful for everything and they'd been that my grandfather was this character who had a number of different jobs in the wars that interrupted them first world war been out and fought in that you know came back started business didn't go that well second world war came along in the meantime had four kids but he was just this very happy character and when i was a young child i, I spent a lot of time at their house and my grandmother who was very bright had been a dressmaker and so on as well she did, it was a great thing. We used to we used to go to their house on a Friday night, and we used to watch Cracker Jack on TV. I remember <laughs> and, that. Yeah, and they and they they didn't long have television, and they were kind of again from the the Brethren uh, background, so very constrained, but but they had a lot of fun in them. 
But they would watch cricket. And once it finished, my grandmother used to say a brilliant thing. She'd say, what a work. She couldn't get over the fact that people put that much effort into all this nonsense. You know, she said, well, what, you know, what's the point of that? But it was just almost like a, you know, it was almost like, wow, that's amazing. And as she got older and she, she had a sort of form of dementia, she had this kind of lovely benign kind of uh, joy about her, which was if, if my parents went around and take her just out in the car, out the countryside, she would say, who, who would have thought that was going to happen today? And it was like, that's amazing, you know. And my mother's inherited this. So my mother's 92, and uh, we're kind of doing a lot of looking after her at the moment because she's on her own, incredibly lonely. So we've got to go up and deliver food and do all that kind of stuff at the moment. And each time you go up, she's just, you know, it's as if you've done it for the first time. Oh, that's wonderful, you know. Yeah. And I think, gosh, you know, we're not doing that much, but it, it, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly uh, great example of, of of gratitude that I I have sort of in my life really. And finally, finally, Ricky, what matters to you most in your own life just now, for which you are most grateful? And I don't mean family and friends and health, but is there one thing that you think I'm so glad I have this? I feel this. Um. I think I feel very grateful for faith because I I think faith is a <laughs> I think faith is a work in progress. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that if if we have if we if we adhere to a religious value of some kind and we're honest about it, it it's a work in progress because there are times when you, there's just nothing there. And and you and you're kind of you're you're trying to to get something, but I think I've noticed when you when you really need something, uh, and I think at this time the uncertainty is so huge, the future is so unknown, and the idea is now in the air that we may never get back the life that we kind of blithely just mm. enjoyed from day to day. It's not there anymore. So what else do we have? And I think that making sense of that for me at the moment, uh, just praying it, learning it, just thinking, um, and um, and sort of thinking, well, what, what, where is God in all this? And what's God saying? And what's how's how is God moving in all of this? That's these have been questions and comforts to me that you know, have helped me get through and sort of see the bigger picture because I think that the world has gone through these times before, but we've not experienced it. And so it's to try and make sense of that and, and what that means. I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing in my personal life at the moment. Ricky, thank you so much for being my guest, for sharing so much on your life and the concept of gratitude. And I wish you and your family well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.